Pushkin. Legacy of Speed is executive produced by Tracksmith and presented by Puma. Hello, hello, I'm Malcolm Gladwell, and welcome to a special episode of Legacy of Speed from Pushkin Industries, Tracksmith, and Puma. The story in this podcast has revolved around Coach Bud Winter and the track and field program he built at San Jose State, nicknamed Speed City. It produced dozens of All-Americans, 37 world record holders, and 20 Olympians. But Speed City also produced a pivotal moment in sports history, a silent protest by two of Bud Winter's black sprinters on the victory stand at the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City. When Tommy Smith and John Carlos raised their fists, they opened the door for other athletes to speak up about racial injustice. Later in this episode, Tommy Smith will join me on stage. I'll also talk about sports and activism with the Trinidadian sprinter and NBC sports analyst, Otto Bolden. But this Legacy of Speed conversation begins with a different story from 1968 about another dominant track program led by another legendary coach. This time, it's a women's team. The Tiger Bells of Tennessee State University were coached by Ed Temple for more than 40 years. One of its biggest stars my first guest, Wyomi Tyus. Wyomi won gold in the 100 meters at the 1964 Olympics, then made history when she did it again in 1968 in Mexico City. She also staged her own silent protest there, and the legacy of Speed's story wouldn't be complete without her. This episode was recorded on stage at Oregon Contemporary Theater in Eugene, Oregon. We were there during the 2022 World Athletics Championships, the Super Bowl of track and field. I wanted you to take us back to 1968. It's a very tumultuous period in American history. Um, It's a tumultuous moment in the civil rights movement. It's a tumultuous Olympic Games. Um, You are how old in 68? 23. 23. So you, you are... No long, you were a child in 64 and you were not a child in 68. <laughs> well, I was 19, so I, was, yeah, yeah. I thought I was grown. <laughs> <laughs> but tell me about that moment. I mean, it's, like I said, a tumultuous period in American history. How aware of all that were you and how did it affect you? Well, I grew up in the South. Okay, I grew up in a uh, small town in Georgia and uh, I grew up on a dairy farm, so... In that community we lived in, it was a white, all white community. We were only black families. So, and not only that, our, you know, my parents always taught us that you know there are certain people that's not going to like you, and there are going to be people that do like you. You need to find the ones that do. So, when it came to '68, I chose two of my dark shorts in the games to show my support for human rights, the human rights project. So after that. Oh, nobody really thought anything about it. You know, the first two days I was in the hundred, and I wore my shorts, black yeah. shorts, in my protest. You entered the '68 games as the clear favorite. No, in the I don't meters. think so. <laughs> but okay, I, I, you're being you're being modest. You're the defending Olympic champion. I was, but you know, nobody really believes this. But it was like, why am I tired? You're too old. I was 23. <laughs> 
I was too old to be back in that Olymp, you know, running under the other time. Because I mean, you look at this and you laugh now because athletes yes. go a long time. And not only that, it, it's very difficult to, you know, come back and double, be back in the Olympic again and all of that. But what I wanted to do is 68. I wanted to graduate from college, which I did before I went in August. And then in October, I went to the games and, and I wanted to win 100 meters again. So that, and I did that in that order. But, you know, it's for me, it was about where the world was and where we were. And it was when we talk about America, but it was, you know, it's all unrest all over the world. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about your. Um, you, your protest mm-hmm. when you went over there. You wore black shorts when you were racing mm-hmm. the 100 meters. Um, what did, did, did it cause any kind of um, controversy? Who noticed? Uh, me? No, no, no one noticed. No one said anything. You know, Why but, not? Well, there could be several reasons. I can't definitely say why, but they didn't care what women did anyway. Mm-hmm. They didn't, you know, it was like, uh, okay, so she wore black shorts. She's out of uniform. Who cares? And that's how I viewed it at the time, and I still do. I mean, I wore the first race in that 100 meters. I did have on my white shorts. I went and changed my shorts to my black shorts, and nobody said anything. Mm-hmm. And it's just after, I mean, long after the games that people start mentioning, you had on black shorts. They mentioned it because I would say it. I said, I had on black shorts. Nobody ever noticed yeah. And they, and but you, you must have, I had you knew shorts. you were going to do this. So I knew I was going to do something. I just didn't know what. <laughs> so you're packing for Mexico City and you're like, I'm going to add some black shorts yeah, just in case. Kind of, sort of like that. For me, I wanted to do something as for showing my support for human rights and mm-hmm. for the project. And that's all I could think of. I could do, I could do that. And then when it came to the 100 meters, and I got to the finals. I even did a little dance up there in front of everybody, but nobody said anything. And then <laughs> and nobody even noticed that I, won, I was a person that won back-to-back 100 meters. I was uh, interviewed by Howard Cassell afterwards, and he was, on, he was yelling that, you know, this is the first person to ever do this and all. And that, and that. But that went by the wayside. But this is how it was for women. Yeah. Women have never gotten credit for with the things they do, and we're still fighting, and we're going to stay in the fight for it. And because uh, mm-hmm. we, <laughs> Wait, so this is an important. I want to. This is a really interesting because I was, I was reading your autobiography mm-hmm. where you speak to this in a very powerful way, um, and I, and you talk about how when the in the conversations leading up to the 1968 games, when there was this discussion about what should the athletes do to speak to the condition of, of not just African-Americans, but around the world, kind mm-hmm. of. And you say that people such as yourself, women athletes such as yourself, were absent from those conversations. They didn't invite you to join in. No, they did. And uh, I've, I've said this over and over. I mean, where it happened in San Jose, I don't, as a woman and my teammates, we were never contacted from anybody from San Jose State about being a part of this whole project. Yeah. You, know. you, you talk about how, in your, in your book, how it might have been different if women had initiated the protests leading up to the 68 <laughs> Games. I loved that. Tell me a little about why, how do, you th- how do you think it would be different if women had? Well, I think 
several things. When women get together and they talk, they try to look at all angles and try to include everybody. As part of the Tiger Bells at Tennessee State, Mr. Temple had always, you know, that was one thing with his program. He made sure we took care of each other. The older girls took care of the younger. And he would always say, you have to have that working relationship with somebody. So, and I thought, and also from being a woman and seeing women really, when it comes to the uh, protests or whatever they have to do, they're, you know, they, the foot soldiers, so to speak. Uh, they may never get the recognition, but they are standing up front saying, I'm here, I'm here to fight for what we really want. So to me, this is how I got there. You know, it's also part of seeing my mom and being around my grandparents and all that and how they worked. My grandmothers and talking about how they would plow and work the fields and all of these kinds of things. And they still come home and they were still strong women. And that's, to me, that's what it is. I, I just think that women try to encompass everybody, try to bring everybody into the movement. If you're strong in numbers, you can get a lot accomplished. Was the fact that you were excluded from those conversations back in 68, how did that make you feel at the time? Were you angry? No. You don't get angry. <laughs> I can't say that. <laughs> uh, but what is it to be angry about? You know, for me, it was more, that's what they're doing on the West Coast. <laughs> we're doing this on the East, you know, and the South. And so also now at that time, Men and women did not compete at the national championships together. Women in one place, men in another place. But we were always separate, and that's a way to also kill a, a well, stop a protest. It's all because nobody's there. And I just think that it was nothing to get angry about. I knew, my, I knew what I was out there for, what I wanted to say and how I wanted to say it. And I, I don't get upset because uh, I'm in the fight. So somewhere along the line, you're going to have to come. We're going to cross paths, and we're going to be able to talk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you think about the Tiger Bells at Tennessee State. They put over 40 women on an Olympic team. They won 23 medals, 13 of them gold. How many people know that? How many people want to talk about that? But this is a team that's from the 50s to the 80s had put people on the Olympic team. And, it, and uh, Mr. Temple was always not so much about winning the medals. He wanted us to have an education. He said, because what happens, track is going to open the door for you, but education is going to keep the door open. So all uh, 90% of his girls graduated from Tennessee State. And the ones that did not, they went on to graduate from another university. And mm-hmm. I think that, you know, these are kinds of things that Mr. Temple, I look back at him and say, how did he know that? This, I mean, he has made us as women, and I'm just one, uh, that has made us feel very proud of who we are. And also not to worry about the fact you're not getting the recognition. The recognition is not for everybody. He's, you know, he was like, what you do, you have to be happy with it. You have to be satisfied. Mm-hmm. And that was the key to me. Are you satisfied with the way these questions have been this debate has unfolded since 68. I mean, when you look back on the last 50 years, are you, do you think we've come a long way? Do you think we've come not far enough? Do you think? Well, I just don't want anybody to get satisfied because there's always some <laughs> a way uh, that we have to always do something. We always, there's always a fight. I just would prefer people not to get disenchanted with so much. But I have to also add the whole fact that I grew up 
They're telling me I shouldn't be running because if I ran, girls, you're not going to have babies. Well, I don't want one. <laughs> you, know, <it's, laughs> you know, you're not going to be, you're not going to get a man because you're going to be stronger than them. They don't want you. I don't want him either because he needs to be, <laughs> you know, these kinds of things. And my, I had my parents, my parents weren't there, but the grandparents and aunts and things. Talk, I remember my first time coming back after being at camp at Tennessee State one summer. And my great aunts was like poking my legs. What are these things? I said, they're muscles. Women, you're not supposed to have muscles. Men don't like muscles. I said, maybe because they don't have any. And she would, they would always say, Yo, that mouth of yours is going to get you in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's just, yeah. you know, it's the same thing. So I, not only was I discriminated against as far as being black, but so I was a woman that I was not to run. I mean, it, they, it was just unheard of. And to run very fast and yeah. to be able to beat everybody. And I, I don't think anybody should feel bad about how they protest or when they protest. If, if I'm not counting, I'm not saying, oh, they didn't do much, they didn't do us right. It, it wasn't about that. It was about me and how I felt and where I was in my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In a moment, sprinter and sportscaster Otto Bolden joins us on stage. This is Legacy of Speed. Recently, I sat down with Tracksmith founder and CEO Matt Taylor to learn more about the brand and why they wanted to tell the story of Speed City through this oral history. I, like you, have been a runner my entire life. I love it. I love the sport. Running is a part of who I am. Um, But I felt like there was so much more that could be done in terms of how the sport is presented and how it makes people feel. And so I started Tracksmith in 2014 to make people fall in love with running. So the, the project, the Bud Winter Speed City project, where did that come from? The image of Tommy Smith and John Carlos on the podium in Mexico City with their gloved fists raised in the air. It has to be one of the most recognizable photos of our generation. But a photo only captures a moment in time, right? It's like a snapshot with no commentary. And as, as powerful as an image that was as a track and field athlete and a fan of the sport, I always wanted to know more. And so as I got to learn more about that story, there were really two parts that felt extremely compelling to me. One was how did this tiny school in California produce so many world-class athletes? San Jose State was not an athletics powerhouse, but in the 1968 Olympics, they, they won three gold medals and a bronze, which was amazing. And then two, the legacy of Speed City its sort of impact on the world as we see it today is not that well known, um, both in terms of athletic performance, but also social justice. More than just incredible products, Tracksmith tells stories and creates experiences that make running more rewarding. This show is just one example. Learn more at tracksmith.com slash legacy of speed and get 15% off your first purchase. Otto Bolden is a four-time Olympic medalist who represented Trinidad and Tobago at four consecutive summer games, starting with Barcelona in 1992. These days, he's the lead track and field analyst 
for NBC Sports. And when I watch track and field, he's the only person I want to hear call a race. How does he do it? A tenth has been taken off of the 200-meter world record. And Usain Bolt has now broken his fifth world record in 12 months. As you can imagine, he was incredibly busy at the World Athletics Championships. But Otto took a break to join me on stage in Eugene. I just discovered something backstage, which I did not know, which is that Otto, like me, is half Jamaican. And I told him that he has risen immeasurably in my <laughs> estimation as a result. <laughs> but um, but um, I wanted to talk to you, you know, our show, Legacy of Speed, a lot of it is about coaching. And we've just been hearing Wyoming talk about Mr. Temple, this, the legendary coach she had it. And we're, our show's a lot about Bud Winter, the legendary coach at San Jose State. And I want to talk about West Indian sprinting dominance. And people always give a long list of reasons. And I'm wondering, is coaching really high on the list? Do we not talk about the set of coaches, particularly the Jamaicans? Do we not talk about the coaches enough in trying to explain Jamaican sprint dominance? Well, um, I, just speaking for myself, I am somebody, if you listen to me on, on NBC, I am constantly referring to the coaches. And in the case of Stephen Francis, who everybody knows as Frano, I'm not sure that he has gotten his, his due. Because since 2008, the woman across the line first at the Olympic Games has been coached by him with no exceptions. That's one heck of a record. Mm -hmm. But it's not just him. You go across town in Kingston and you have Glenn Mills, who's produced the two fastest human males of all time. So um, the coaching is very important, as, as any athlete will tell you. But I think in track and field, because it is an individual sport and because there has to be such a bond, you don't have four teammates or 10 teammates to help you out there on that, on that field or on that court. There has to be a bond with that coach, which I don't, I'm not sure if we ever have enough time on television to really get across how important that coach is to the product that you see. I mean, it's a very uh, important relationship uh, yeah. with an athlete, obviously. We, you know, in talking about Bud Winter, who, whose athletes dominate sprinting through the 50s, actually through the early 70s, um, trying to figure out what it is that he's doing that's so um, crucial and Clearly, some of it is what you just talked about, which a lot of that is psychological, the bond with the athlete. In case of Bud Winter, it is preaching this, um, this gospel of relaxation. We've got two things here. We have technique and actual training, and then we have this um, emotional, psychological element. Um, the two of you, I'd love you to both answer this. How do you decide which of those two pieces is more important? What was it in your case that you think was crucial? Well, for me, it was the fact that to be able to be with a coach that not only cared about my running, but cared about me as a person. With the Tiger Bells, he had built that camaraderie. We have to take care of each other because if we don't take care of each other, nobody else is. And, and he also taught the fact that, you know, it's okay. Everybody's not going to be able to get on the victory stand. Everybody's not going to win a gold medal, but everybody can contribute. Yeah. It's, I mean, you're talking about creating a community. Yes. Um, Otto, I'd love you to speak to this. This is what's so striking about the history of sprinting, which is it's always in clusters, right? There's the San Jose State cluster in the 60s. Right. There's the Tiger Bells 
uh, cluster in uh, in Nashville. There's the there's the Jamaican cluster of the last Santa two. Monica. Yeah, Santa Monica. If if it was just about talent, quote unquote, then you would expect to find spinners from all over. Yeah. So it so it underscores my last point about what do all of those clusters have in common? They had one really good coach with a group where every, it was sort of disseminating the same information to talented athletes. They rise to the top. They win all the medals. But specifically about about Bud Winter and that thing about relaxation, um, not every Olympic and world champion is going to be the most relaxed. But just look, just recently, right? Elaine Thompson in uh, in, in Tokyo and in Rio. I, I, I coach young athletes and I say, you see, Elaine, you cannot tell where she is in the race or which round it is. Because she's going to look the, ex- the, the same way mm-hmm. when she is competing. So I think that while not everything that, that Bud Winner was, was teaching them in the 60s has necessarily trickled down, there are certain elements of sprinting that he, whether he discovered them or he made them more prominent in the, uh, in, in the track and field world, you can tie what you see on the track now to what he was saying 60 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I liken it to almost like, I mean, all of us know um, Dick Fosbury. Everybody was going over the high jump a certain way. And he looked and he said, but why is that? This is better. I'm going to try that. And I love having conversations with him about how much vitriol he got directed at him. Because people were like, you're crazy. Why don't you go over the, the bar backwards? Look at where we are now. Yeah. <laughs> There's nobody going over the bar forwards. But it takes somebody to look at something and go, why are we doing it this way? Let's look at it differently. Yeah. It's fascinating to me on this, this question of the paradox of, of relaxation being the, the, uh, the vehicle of peak performance, right? It's, it is. It, it doesn't make any intuitive sense. To a, to a kid, obvious effort is the necessary ingredient in peak performance, right? The grimacing, the... And I, I think of... Matthew Bowling, an extraordinarily talented young man who looks like he is in pain and who is so contorted. And I want to say, who's his coach? <laughs> Listen, um, I coach young sprinters uh-huh. and there's a reason why I don't coach older sprinters because I like to be able to plant my, my seeds in the ground and water them and cultivate them the way I want. And a lot of times when I've coached older sprinters, it's like you have to undo years of them doing it wrong. Um, Matthew Bowling is fixable. Oh, you mm-hmm. think he's fixable? Oh, he's, he's, it's definitely fixable. Why, I mean, why are you laughing? You don't think he's fixable? Well, to me, I mean, you, <laughs> you, you come with what you get. I mean, because I remember when I started out, I, mean, I was running all crazy. And Mr. Temple used to say, relax. And I was just... <laughs> what is he talking about? I am relaxed. And he's telling me I'm not. And I remember one of the Tiger Bells, Vivian Brown, and she said to me at the practice, she said, look, don't listen to him. Just do how you feel. And that's like, and it just dropped all, and and everything started to play in place. But it's every day he would have me out there after practice, getting my arms, doing this, doing this. He started calling me mechanical man because I was trying to do exactly <laughs> as he said. And I was just losing it. And like, I, I think of Lee Evans, and everybody talked about how bad he ran. He ran all well, over the place. He was all over the place. He yeah, was he all was. over the place. But that was him. That 
I think if you had changed him, if he had changed it, he probably would have never been as good as he was because that was his, that was relaxation to him. We looked at it and said, oh, gosh, didn't look relaxed to us. And then when he was running beside Larry James, who was a cool, smooth runner, and he could still beat him. And you want, but he was still running that crazy. Maybe relaxed is relaxed the wrong word? Is the word we're really interested in comfortable? Yeah, that's it. Probably is. Yes, Re- relaxes. I think conveys um, conveys something that's not actually what the sprinter is trying to achieve. Because the truth is that you may have somebody who has awful form in in terms of not being classic form, but they are relaxed. So maybe it's not aesthetically pleasing to to your eye. But to them, they're like, I'm I'm comfortable being herky jerky like this. So you're, you're right. <laughs> yeah. Maybe relax is not the word we yeah. want. So yeah. <laughs> you, I want to just go back briefly to something you said earlier when you said when you get when you coaching sprinters, sometimes you have to unlearn things. What are the kinds? Give me an example of something that a sprinter might have to unlearn if they want to. Oh, I I can I can go there quickly. When I got to UCLA, John Smith, who is in that Bud Winter tree. Um, said, I don't like how your right arm swings out. And I said, okay, so what do I have to do to fix it? And he said, you know, when you walk into class, I want you for the next two weeks, every step you take, I want that, that I want those arms going behind you as opposed to out. And I walked around like an idiot at UCLA <laughs> for two weeks. But it but it programmed yeah. me and it it rewrote the operating system. Yeah. So that you look at me as a collegian and as a and as a pro versus high school, and it was like, yeah, I had a coach who realized I'm not okay. That was one thing I had to unlearn. Certain things I couldn't unlearn. I had this thing where left foot twelve o'clock, right foot two o'clock, and coach is like, tuck that foot, that foot. My mother was at practice one day, and she goes, um, "Coach, that boy." has been pointing that foot at two o'clock since the night he walked. So if you want to waste your time trying to correct that, I'm going to tell you right now that's a waste of time. So this, I think yeah. as a coach, you have to look at things. Like, okay, there's a lot of talk this week about Abby Steiner. Well, she doesn't have classic forms. That, yeah, 2180 in college. So that coach can choose to nitpick on one or two little things or, as she said, focus on what she does well and maybe enhance that. You have to be careful as a coach what you're going to choose to spend your time fixing. Because you may spend 10 years fixing something that is not, you know, it's going to give you what, point oh oh one of a second. It's like, to win on, pick your to... battles. Let's talk a little more about the Jamaicans. Just because I can talk about Jamaica forever. <laughs> um, I would be curious, can we come up with explanations? This is This is beyond... Bizarre now. This is a tiny, it's not as small as Trinidad, but it's a tiny, tiny island. And people always undercut it, because, underestimate it because it's not just the Jamaicans in Jamaica, but then the Jamaicans go to Canada. All the Canadian sprinters are Jamaicans and all the great British sprinters are Jamaicans. It's like, it, so it's kind of, it's getting ridiculous. What is going on with the Jamaicans? Um, it, is, it is not any one thing. You can, I remember when um, we were competing and they were coming and swabbing, swabbing our gums because they were going to do the study. And of course, they traced all the all of the Olympic medalists and, and world champions um, from the Caribbean. Um, my mother's Jamaican, and yeah, both and I are from the same. Our 
ancestors are from the same place in, in Trelawney, Jamaica. Oh, really? So it was mm. like, wow. Now, of course, yeah. I have to remind Jamaicans all the time because they act like sometimes that they invented uh, the 100-meter dash for men. I said, oh, by the way, you know, Bolt won for Jamaica for the first time in 08. You know, in Trinidad won the first Olympic gold medal? In 76. Here we yeah. go. Okay, here we go. so here we go. you, got, you here guys we didn't go. invent it, even if maybe <laughs> you're perfecting it. But, okay, so that's one aspect. Here's the aspect that I think people who have never been to Jamaica miss. My mother kept telling me for years, you have to go and see their high school championships. And I went, I'm going to see their high school championships for in Jamaica. She was like, trust me, you need to go and see it. Mr. Voice of the Sport, Mr. Uber Track and Field fan, you have to go and see it. And I went about 10 years ago and I went, oh, now I get it. Yeah. Track and field in Jamaica is a religion. The average person on the street can tell you Shelly Ann Fraser Price's top five times, how much they've dominated the sport. They, they know things that, quite frankly, as a broadcaster, I go, okay. So when you have a, when you have a young, talented population and the, and the genetics are there, and all of them come up in a system where if you win at those high school championships, you're a household name in that country. Yeah. Your face is splashed all over the, the, the papers, right? There's a different incentive. That's why when you see those Jamaican kids come to the Penn Relays, and run half of those teams off the track, and you go, whoa, from that, tiny, from that tiny island? They've already beaten the best in Jamaica. So to the rest of the world, they're like, hmm. Yeah. <laughs> the, my cousin, who lives in Kingston, um, was telling me a story about he had aspirations for um, his son, who was eight or nine. And he said, well, the, he's eight, I think. He said, well, my, um, the sprint coach at my son's school says he has some problems. I said, wait. At eight. Your son, your, the public school in Kingston, where his son goes, has a sprint coach for eight-year-olds. I mean, that's nuts. <laughs> and it's not, just, it's not just Jamaicans in Jamaica, the diaspora as well. So this, you know, this is a, the, the name uh, for this phenomenon is called capitalization. And capitalization refers to the percentage of talent in any given community for a given thing that is allowed to reach its potential. So... Um, and one of the observations about capitalization is that capitalization rates are always lower than you think. So people will look at the United States and say, oh, we've got, you know, what, I'm making up a number, four world-class chess players. And we say, oh, it's really hard to be a, you know, chess, we've got a pretty good system for finding chess players. In fact, you know, if you actually made chess a priority, you could probably find 100 yep. or 200. Right, we're way under. There are whole communities in the United States who never play chess, and if you just introduce chess to high schools in, you know, blah, 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 we could. It's probably true. So what Jamaica is is a country with a really high capitalization rate when it comes to sprinting. For sure, they probably found seventy-five percent of the great sprinters. Absolutely. Whereas here, how, how? Who knows how many fantastic sprinters we just never locate because we don't have them out on the track. At, or they're playing other sports. Coming up, sprinter Tommy Smith joins the conversation. We'll be right back. Our final chapter in A Story of Speed City wouldn't be complete without one of its stars. 
Tommy Smith joined us on stage to reflect on the legacy of 1968. Remember that Tommy and our guest, Wyoming Tyus, both competed in Mexico City and both won gold medals. After Tommy and John were sent home from the Mexico City Games, our guest, Wyoming Tyus, dedicated one of her two gold medals to her two teammates. And she did it even though female athletes were largely ignored by the leaders of the Olympic Project for Human Rights. We'll hear about that in a moment. But first, I started out by asking our guests, Tommy, Wyoming, and Otto Bolden, about the dominant sprinters of today. I want to talk a little bit about the link between your era and the present era. Um, when you guys look at the, uh, the dominant sprinters of today, who reminds you of you? Tommy? A plethora of athletes I'm thinking, but I'm th- fighting over one, and his name is Noel uh, Lyles, I do believe. I've talked to him a few no, times. Nice. Noel Lyles, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Noel Lyles, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, from, from the blocks uh, to the midturn, and especially at the last 60 meters, if he's not in there, then it would have to be from the blocks all the way as hard as I possibly can. My finish is much better than my starts. So we're all athletes, but we have different portions of the race. And that's what I look at when I'm viewing uh, world-class athletes is where the minute uh, second is most important. Uh, And that's where you can see the big difference. And where it is, is at the finish. That is, if the automatic timing is working. <laughs> That's right. So it, 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 sometimes it, 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 it takes a while to get warmed up, but it's a fact. Otto, did, do you, what's your answer to that question? Who, who around today reminds you, say, of, of Tommy Smith? Or? When, I saw, when I saw Bolt, uh-huh. that's, that's who I thought. Somebody who could run, up, could run an amazing quarter could give you a, a fabulous two, but could also step down um, into the 100 stump as, as well. And of course, because of their height. Yeah. Um, pr- now that Bolt's gone, I think he's right. Noah Lyles is probably, when you talk about race modeling, but like Tommy, it's like, if he is within striking range in the last 100, look out. <laughs> Wyoming, you, um, to bring us back to 68, um, you dedicated your gold medal in the four by 100 meters. Mm-hmm. To uh, was it was it specifically to Tommy and John or was it? Yeah, specifically to them. Yeah, so I dedicated my medals because what they were saying and what they did in my mind was that this is how it is for us as black people. This is we we do not get respect, so to speak. And this was my way of showing how I supported them, supported the human rights movement, Mm -hmm. you know, because we all have to have those human rights. And uh, I was a total believer in that. And nobody noticed those shorts, so I had to say, do something else. (laughs) And what happened when you did that? Nothing. (laughs) (laughs) You, I mean, it's, I I know you, you, it's for me, I'm used to it, but the fact that they could care less about what women did at that moment. And as a black woman, they surely did not care what I did or what I said because it wasn't important to them because, you know, what are women supposed to do? Well, 
in the 60s, what did they think? Women supposed to get married, take care of their husband, make sure you're a good cook, make sure you take care of the babies. Mm -hmm. Tommy, when you heard that Wyoming had dedicated her medal to you and John, how did you feel? I felt very happy, solid in her in her thought, uh, the way she moved before uh, the uh, the, uh, the the hundred meters and after, and knowing her personally, uh, knowing her background of giving, and it was a mistake uh, not to totally include the women in the OPHR, the Olympic Project for Human Rights. Uh, and she's a uh, very uh, uh, conscious in knowing what happened. Mm-hmm. So when she dedicated the, uh, her medal, I was ecstatic yeah. to the point where I really cried because yeah. uh, she really substantiated the, the need uh, for us to understand that uh, they should have been dealt more uh, respect than they were given. Yeah. You know, when I think, when I was researching, digging into this story, the the thing in the back of my mind throughout it was Colin Kaepernick. And that how much Colin Kaepernick was uh, a stepchild of what you guys were doing, and then I th- thought all, saw the kind of hostility that he faced from within the NFL, and I thought, is it really the case that we've been doing this now for fifty years, and we haven't moved? His protest was was a fraction of yours. All he did was kneel. It wasn't like he was fist up. He did the mildest, most respectful form, and they still went after him. How did you feel and about? He did it more than once. Yeah, yeah. he did it more than once. And uh, Colin is a very easygoing, moving guy, very loving type individual. And he did what he thought was necessary. He used his platform, like I know two other guys use a platform to try to better the social attitude of a country who was so dire in its hate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, one last question to Otto. Uh, how risky would it be for an athlete here at these world championships who is, you know, at the top of their event to do something as public and as um, outspoken as uh, John and Tommy and Wyoming did in 1968? Is it still risky? Oh, it's, it, it's risky, but it's risky in a different sort of way. We live in an era of cancel culture. Every one of those athletes that crosses the line, gold, silver, bronze, whatever, they may have a cause that they are absolutely passionate about and that they want to use their platform to push forward. But then they have to consider, oh, is this going to line up with my sponsor? Is this going to line up with my federation? So the reason why I wear black socks and wore black socks my entire career is these two because I understood that they didn't have the, the the contract thing, and yet look at what all three of them did. So to me, the current day athlete is almost derelict in their duty. They they should be more activist. They should be more vocal, but because it's tied to their bank account, many of them are reluctant. Um, so it, 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 to me, it sort of makes me look back at this generation and go, they were special. That does it for Legacy of Speed. Thank you to my guests, Wyoming Tyus, Otto Bolden, and Tommy Smith. 
Also, thank you to everyone who made this live event possible, especially Maricela Castillo and Laura Morgan from Pushkin Industries. Thanks also to our friends at Oregon Contemporary Theater, Amy Dunn, Mary Weatherby, Christopher Lewis, and Cameron Jackson. This conversation was recorded and mixed by our engineer, Jake Gorski. Special thanks to Matt Taylor, Ryan Eckel, and Lee Glendorf at Tracksmith. Eric Lilo at Puma, Adam Schmenk from USA Track and Field, and Christopher McCloskey of NBC Sports. Legacy of Speed is hosted by me, Malcolm Gladwell. It's executive produced by Tracksmith and presented by Puma. Our producers are Joel Meyer and Emily Rostek. The show is edited by Trisha Bobita and Karen Shakurji. Original music composed by Alexis Quadrado and trumpet by Lee Hogan's. Fact-checking by Winton St. Clair. Our Pushkin EPs are Catherine Girardeau and Mila Bell. Our development team is Lital Molod and Justine Lang. Legacy of Speed is a production of Pushkin Industries. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.